Welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people for all people. My name is Evan, and this week, I'm making the conversation about me. Kelly and Steven, what are you guys watching on TV these days? Uh, I don't really watch much TV, to be honest. I think the last show that I watched was um, The Good Place. Ah, great show. Great show. Um, yeah, so I am watching Community right now. I'm watching, I think, season five or something. Um, it's pretty good. Also, I want to make a shout out to the fact that I'm extremely sunburnt right now, um, which is uh, because due to my floating down the Virginia River. It finally happened. It didn't rain. So that was fun. It's true. Uh, Steven sent in the chat earlier that he is Larry the Lobster. So um, you can envision that when you're thinking of Steven today. Well, so I can see Steve, like we can see Steven on camera right now, and it doesn't look too bad in the picture. Maybe it's just like the color of the video doesn't show the full magnitude of it, but you look, you look okay. Oh, God. You don't, you don't really, what? He's sprouting extra limbs. He's, he's turning into a (laughs) lobster. His eyes are bulging out. The listener, you can't see this, but I'm describing it for you in vivid detail right now. He's, he's turning into a lobster. Cool. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so anyway, last week we started our conversation on the grid, and we alluded to some regulatory policies, but um, this week we're going to really delve into the regulatory policies. So Kelly, why don't you start us out? Yeah, so um, last week we talked about the government-regulated monopolies that utilities are. So essentially, um, when utilities started, the government decided that it didn't make sense to have multiple um, competitive utilities because you would then have to run two sets of wires down the same street, doubling the cost, and it's just worse for everyone. So they agreed that they could have a monopoly, but the government would regulate them to make sure that they weren't price gouging customers. So essentially, this is known as the regulatory compact. In exchange for monopoly control over customers in a given geographical location, utilities promised to provide low-cost, reliable, and non-discriminatory energy for everyone. And the way that they made money is essentially um, through guaranteed returns on investment. So it's called rate-basing, basically capital projects. So if you build something, let's say you build a new substation, it costs $10 million. You're allowed to make a 10% return, and so you are allowed to include that $11 million into the rates that you're charging to your customers. And so this is basically how they make money, and it's why they're incentivized to build ever-increasing amounts of equipment. In the beginning, basically the more infrastructure that utilities built, the more electricity that was available to provide to their customers. And as they scaled up this infrastructure, electricity got cheaper, um, and then consumers would use more electricity because it was cheaper. The development of new appliances, dishwashers, vacuums, air conditioning was a virtuous cycle to increase the amount of electricity consumed. And in the 50s and 60s, there was basically this idea that economic growth and prosperity was tied to rising um, energy use. And so utilities, even though they're a regulated monopoly, they're still growing all the time. And so growth, beginning growth, um, while that's going on, everyone's happy until the 70s when there was an energy crisis. Yeah. So so essentially we saw um, this kind of growth happening for about 100 years or so. Um, you know, utilities just being just being incentivized to continue to grow um, and everyone was happy. It was a business model that worked, um, and the government was happy, consumers were happy, and utility companies were happy. Um, then came around the 1970s, and in 1973, there was the Yom Kippur War um, between Israel and the Palestine states, um, and in 1979, 
um, the Iranian Revolution. Um, both of these conflicts created oil crises for us in the, in the United States. So during this energy crisis, essentially, um, oil became ext- extremely expensive and supply chains were congested and you see these pictures of like extremely long um, lines at the gas stations when cars are backed up all the way and there's a sign that says, no more gas, you know, things like that. Um, and th- this is like a, a moment that is really um, markedly uh, signified in American history. Um, and what happened after that is during, this was um, in the late 1970s, um, President Jimmy Carter came into office and he instituted among many other things, something called um, colloquially known as his cardigan policy. And it's known the cardigan policies um, because he, he spoke to the, to the US public in the fireside chat wearing a cardigan, which as we all know, like presidential apparel is like uh, an object of incredible scrutiny and a lot of, um, you know, it, it seems to send a huge message a lot of times. So, so he came out wearing his cardigan, um, the fireside chat, and he essentially was saying, um, look, Americans, you, we all need to, instead of turning on the heater, we just put on a cardigan. You know, stop, don't use your energy, just bundle up. Being, essentially signaling a little bit, he's asking for like a little bit of sacrifice from the American people. This, this was essentially a signal to everyone that um, the energy landscape was changing, and therefore he, he enacted this giant um, suite of policies called PURPA, or the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act. And essentially what it boils down to is deregulation and getting the government to kind of step out away from the monopolies um, business model. So within PURPA, there were, there were a huge number of, of, of policies. It's a very broad um, set of legislation. But um, among those, I think the first thing that we should, the, 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 the real thing that we should point out here is this, there was a small clause in there that said that third party energy providers could now um, come into the mix and provide energy. Whereas before, it was all a government-regulated monopoly, which meant that utilities were vertically integrated, so they controlled everything from generation of energy to transmission of energy to distribution of energy. They controlled every single aspect of the energy um, uh, pipeline. So now third-party energy providers could come into the mix, and what this really meant at the time was that small factories who um, produced excess heat from their, from their normal, uh, from the normal operations, they can now sell this heat as energy and back to the utility and make a little bit of money. So at the time, it was really not a big deal. It was a very small thing and no one really paid it much attention. But it's really important because this little clause and this little space created is what has now blossomed into the solar, the wind energy um, industries, and pretty much anyone who's a third-party energy provider, someone who wants to produce energy on their own and sell it either to the utility or sell it to customers. Yeah, um, I think... PURPA um, is a really interesting policy that where they like they just put this tiny provision in that resulted in basically enabled the conditions for this whole industry to boom in the United States. Um, back to your point about sweater policy, I think it's really interesting that Carter's whole vision essentially was self-sacrifice. Like, okay, you will have to be a little bit uncomfortable. Don't turn on your heat indoors because we have to conserve energy. Um, in contrast, in the 70s, this, um, this was also when um, Amory Lovins published this seminal piece. Basically, he was the father of energy efficiency, and he said, what Americans want is cold showers, sorry, hot showers and cold beers, not cold showers and hot beers. That's gross. <laughs> um, and so if you can provide, like, if you can provide it more efficiently, you can use less energy resources while still um, 
providing all the services that people want. And so he started this organization called the Rocky Mountain Institute, um, which kind of thinks about like, how can we provide comfort and energy services, but without like destroying the environment. And I think it's really interesting to think about that paralleled with what we see in the climate movement. Originally in the 90s, it was like all these countries, like we need to share sacrifice, you know, those who have been more advanced need to sacrifice more. And now because the costs of renewable energy have gone down, it's like actually using renewable energy, building out solar, wind, batteries is going to be a huge job creator and that'll provide more prosperity for everyone. And I think it's just interesting to think about that framing. It's not either or, right? Like you don't have to be uncomfortable and miserable to um, be environmentally beneficial. So when we're talking about these policies that uh, occurred under the Carter administration, was this the first time that anyone voiced concerns about the government-regulated monopoly of utilities, or just the first time those concerns were translated to policies? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't um, there wasn't actually that much criticism or, or problems with the utilities method of running business for, for most of that time. Um, I think as the way as the way human beings are and the way societies um, tend to develop, change doesn't happen gradually, like little by little. Um, ideally, we would be able to look through the through the nineteenth uh, through the twentieth century and be able, be able to say, oh, there was a little bit of change here, a little bit of change there, a little bit of gradual improvement of the utility business model. But it, it really wasn't like that. It happened because of the oil crisis and this giant watershed um, movement to to reform uh, energy in the United States. Like at, up to that time, um, even though they were a government regulated monopoly, like there was no problems. Uh, people were um, getting cheaper and cheaper energy, and, and Americans just kept you know consuming energy at cheaper prices and therefore consuming more energy. And the utilities therefore kept building more infrastructure. And everyone's making money. Everyone's getting getting cheap energy. So there wasn't really a problem with that um, until, um, yeah, the oil crisis. Yeah. And um, basically, while energy demand was going up, people were consuming more energy. The utilities were basically very happy to let things grow. And I think everyone just got complacent. Um, Like electricity growth particularly grew a lot um, in the post-war era. When people started moving into the suburbs and with the development of new appliances, like I was mentioning earlier, that consumed a lot more energy. I think that made the country also a lot more susceptible to external price shocks. Which I would also add is is another reason that this oil crisis spurred many different things. Like The oil crisis is the inspiration for so, the solar industry to take off because we were realizing we are so dependent on Middle Eastern oil and it can really hurt our economies and our way of life when there's conflict out there in the Middle East. So as people started to really think about um, how do we create energy independence, which is coincidentally a Republican talking point when talking about solar and wind energy. It's like it, the reason we're going to go towards solar and wind is not because of the environment, but because we want to increase increase our own national security and not be dependent on the the geopolitical situation of the Middle East. Um, so yeah, so after um, you know, after these uh, the PERPA legislations were rolled out in the nineteen in late 1970s and started continuing to roll out in the 1980s, um, we started to see a, a decade of energy um, re- restructuring. And, and then in like the fast forwarding to the late 1990s, um, at this point, the Department of Energy has already been established for, for 20 years or so. And the Department of Energy has created this other organization called FERC. Um, which is called, which is the Federal Energy Regulation um, Commission, uh, I believe, and um, that's in the late 1990s. And there, they created um, they created these these uh, these uh, bodies called ISOs and RTOs. 
So, um, Kelly, do you, you want to take over with what are, what are ISOs and RTOs? Yeah, so basically ISO stands for Independent System Operator, and RTO is a Regional Transmission Operator. Basically, they're kind of the grid operators, so they, they're basically kind of like a utility, but at a bigger scale. So for instance, California has several utilities, including the main ones PG&E, SoCal Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric, as well as some other smaller ones like LA DWP, um, Sacramento um, Municipal Utility District, and basically... There's a California integrated system operator, which oversees all of them and helps balance power across the state. There's also several other ones. A big one in the East Coast is PJM, which stands for Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, but also includes, it's like 11 or 13 states total. So it, it goes all the way to like Illinois. Um, and so basically having a bigger region across which you can balance power is pretty helpful when you're trying to integrate variable renewable sources. Like one thing in California that they're trying to do is um, use the um, hydro dams in Washington essentially as a battery um, for their solar, right? So you can use this um, this hydro from Washington in the evening when there's less solar. And so increasing the amount of interconnections um, can help out with that. And so um, even though the Pacific Northwest is not part of California, there are lines to connect it. And so they can purchase power from the Pacific Northwest to help integrate solar in California. But across the country, there's actually three distinct regions that are not interconnected. So Texas, obviously, because it's Texas and everything's different in Texas, it has to have its own electricity build. I Well, they, their um, electricity grid is already seceded. Texit, right? Um, well, they didn't exit. It was just never connected in the first place. So... Um, Their grid is called ERCOT, which stands for the Electricity Reliability Corporation of Texas. They're basically their own little island grid, um, and then they're surrounded by everyone else. So the way that their energy market works is actually the most deregulated um, energy-only market, which we don't have to get into. But basically, um, there's a lot of competition there and a lot of um, really interesting things going on. Um, There's also the West grid and the East grid. So the dividing line kind of goes in the like down the middle of the country through like Montana, um, South Dakota, etc. And those basically on either side of it, there's pretty much no lines carrying energy back and forth. So we have a lot of, let's say, wind energy in the Great Plains in, say, Nebraska. There's no way to get that over to California. And so being able to share power across the country could actually increase the amount of renewables that we're able to integrate. So harking back to the energy independence that you were talking about earlier, Stephen, uh, when we look into energy solutions for the U.S., we often look to countries in Europe like Denmark. So Kelly, could you speak to some of their methods and maybe even speak to how these methods might be applicable in the U.S.? Yeah. So first of all, something that's really interesting about Denmark is that even though they're a tiny country, they are a clean energy powerhouse. So um, one of the big Danish companies called Orsted is one of the world's biggest manufacturers of um, wind turbines and offshore wind turbines. And that's basically like they see that that's the future and that their government is really heavily advocating for this, both um, and in international trade talks as well. Um, and the energy gang Jigger Shaw kind of mentioned that um, offshore wind is done. Those deals are done at the Illuminati level. So in some countries, if they'll if they're trying to block the permits for offshore wind projects, 
the Danish ambassador will go to them at the G20 and be like, hey man, why aren't you giving us the permits? Give us the permits because we want to sell our wind turbines to you. And so in contrast, you see that what the U.S. government, the U.S. government at the highest level doesn't really see um, clean energy as an indus- as a domestic industry that should be propped up. I think to some extent there is some bipartisan agreement. We've seen that um, recently the Trump administration has been advocating for increased domestic manufacturing of batteries to compete with um, the big Chinese and Korean manufacturers. Um, we do have one gigafactory, but China has like 50 from many different companies. And so I think that's a big thing, like getting the government on board with pushing these technologies because they don't exist in a vacuum and kind of expecting that the free market will take care of it won't work when other countries are highly pushing for it. Yeah, and I I could also add to that that um, Europe Europe and the EU in general are something like a decade ahead of us in terms of energy regulation and deregulation. So um, the Europe uh, in the 1990s has really started to deregulate its entire utility sector, and um, there's been about a decade of chaos that, that followed that. Um, maybe, maybe chaos is a strong word, but definitely some, some upheaval and volatility from, from private companies kind of trying to pick up the pieces and, and compete and figure out how to do things efficiently. Um, so looking at them, they're about 10 years ahead of us. California in the United States is, is the, really like the leader in terms of energy uh, policy and regulation in the United States. And then the rest of the states kind of look to California a lot of times for, for what works and what doesn't work. Um, other things that we can look to for Europe for an example, for example, for example, for example. Um, but um, really, the one of the interesting things that is huge is, is during this COVID um, recession that we are finding ourselves in right now, um, Europe is really focusing on rebuilding from, from the ashes of this into, a, into, into having sustainability at the core of their economy. Um, they're, they're, they're really not, not just making it, oh, it's an important thing that we should take care of as well, but actually making it a core to their business model. Um, so, for example, with airlines that, who are asking for bailouts, um, I think, um, I'm not sure what country it was, Kelly, do you know um, which one? I think it was um, Air France. Air France. So that so Air France is saying, yeah, you can have a bailout, but only if you, you know, abide by these strict regulations and make sure that your 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 greenhouse emissions are going down. And, um, you know, so things like that. So that's not just giving um, money with no strings attached, but saying, like, you can take this money on the condition that you really take sustainability to the core. And um, so that's something that we need to do in the United States. And um, even though we've missed a couple of the stimulus rounds that have happened so far in Congress, we still have um, a couple big stimulus um, checks that are becoming, not, not saying like individual stimulus checks that you receive in the mail, but huge policies and legislations that are to be passed. And hopefully we can see that happen sometime this year or in the next year when a new administration is in charge. Now it's time for Evan's Climate Fact of the Day! Woo! Thanks, Stephen. Did you know Jimmy Carter's cardigan policy was succeeded by Reagan's Vineyard Vines and Sperry policy, which contends that using your thermostat is okay because the AC will eventually trickle down to the working class? And that was Evan's Climate Fact of the Day! See, who says that Evan's Climate Fact of the Day isn't an educational segment in our show? I'd also like to point out that uh, while she didn't laugh out loud, Kelly did put a ha-ha-ha in the chat. So uh, I'd just like to make that known that um, 
when, when I do say these things, they, Stephen and Kelly do find them funny. They just uh, don't always vocalize. So anyway, <laughs> in typical renewable generation fashion, we talked about the status quo and how we got there in the first part of the episode. And in the second half, now we're going to talk about the future. So what will the grid of the future look like, Stephen? Yeah. So, you know, we spent some time in the first half talking about um, the grid and um, the interconnections, you know, the east interconnection, the west interconnection in Texas. And things are a little bit um, sectioned off right now. But one way we can really improve our grid is to connect all of that together, to have one nationally interconnected grid. So here we are again talking about transmission lines, which again are the higher voltages, which means that those lines are used to send energy very long distances as opposed to distribution level, which is a little bit lower voltages and just sends energy within maybe one city or a town or a small geographical area like that. Um, so, you know, as of now, because we have those three partitioned off and sectioned off interconnections, that means that energy can only really be flowing around in within those interconnected areas. Um, but we, we what it essentially does is it allows for inefficiencies to lie on the grid. So say... Um, we are producing um, a ton of electrons in the northwest. In, in, in Seattle, we got this giant dam flowing, and we have all, you know, excess electrons going onto the grid, and not even everyone within the west can consume those um, at the given moment. However, we need, um, you know, down in Louisiana, we, we have uh, a necessity for energy. Um, as of now, we can't really um, send that energy to Louisiana, and, and Louisiana will have to abide by whatever is available within their interconnection or maybe just their ISO and their RTO. And a lot of times that, that will not be clean energy because of the lack of availability there. So as, as we're starting to see more penetration and, and expansion of clean energy electrons onto the grid, we need, a, we need to provide the opportunities for those electrons to be transported to wherever they're needed um, because, because the nature of clean energy is that it's, it's so um, distributed and localized as opposed to like centralized. Um, this, this really is going to open up the floodgates and allow um, the, pure, the pure economic potential of clean energy to, to really be seized upon. One other thing is that, you know, as we're talking about um, this, this nationally interconnected grid, we can also talk about technological updates to that grid. So maybe what, what would that look like, you think, Kelly? So I think the idea of the smart grid and having a modern um, 21st century electricity system is something that... Sh- I think is fairly bipartisan. The first step to this is having things like smart meters, which don't just count um, what amount of kilowatt hours you use in a given month. It's actually, um, you can do it by like your time period. Um, So maybe every 15 or 30 minutes, it'll say, okay, this is the amount of electricity that you consumed. And this allows for things like you can charge people based on the times that they use their energy. For instance, if you have solar, if you're generating it in the middle of the day, like in California, we're moving towards time of use rates, like we mentioned last week. Um, another interesting thing is that when smart meters first started being rolled out in California, there was all this concern about the like EMFs and kind of not dissimilar from the concern about 5G these days, where they were afraid that installing these things would cause like weird electrochemical damage to you and your home. But then I think the concern of that around that has gone away as people realize that they like use their phones all the time and they like put them next to their face when they sleep and uh, smart meters are not going to be as much of an issue as that. So there's things like smart meters and then also having smart devices like thermostats that can respond to changes on the grid. So for instance, you could have them um, 
kind of maybe pre-cool your house a little bit when there's extra solar in the middle of the day than in the evening when the peak would normally be. Your house is, let's say normally it's at 78 degrees, it's already at 75 degrees, so you don't have to keep cooling it. It's already a little bit pre-cooled. Um, things like energy storage as well. There's also things like um, ice batteries where you can make ice using your extra solar and then use that to run your air conditioner so it'll be like 95% more efficient um, than actually running the compressor. So technologies like that that actually don't affect the comfort of the people in the building but can shift power around to use it in a more intelligent way are going to be a critical part of the grid of the future. Yeah, that's right. So so smart meters, um, ultimately, the smart meters are going to be coupled with other technologies. Um, so really, smart meters are good at gathering data, and then they send that data to other technologies, which will use that use that data, Either whether that's a smart thermostat or this entire movement of the smart home, like Nest. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners have Nest, um, like that smart doorbell or um, you know, this, this data can also be used, sold to the utility so that they have better forecasting data and they know how much energy they need to provide for you, which is, which isn't actually a very expensive problem to solve. So that being said, so smart meters, you know, they're good in that aspect, but what are some of the, you know, when Kelly talked about these drawbacks of like the people, the, the fear that, that there exists there, I do want to spend a little bit of time touching on that because I think that those anxieties, though they are, um, somewhat laughable at times. I think there is some validity to that fear because, um, so the truth, the truth thing is like, the truth is like, if you have a smart meter on your home, the utility can predict what you're kind of doing. Like they're going to get the data from your house and say, Oh, you're probably watching, you know, channel nine of the TV right now. Like that's the level of resolution of the data um, that this provides sometimes. And so there are like privacy concerns that we need to start bringing up here um, as well as, this, this is on like the cusp of this entire Internet of Things movement in general. So like as we start to get more sensors in everyday aspects of our lives, there will be more data out there. So, so we do we do want to be careful about those privacy concerns. And um, we, we it should be attention should be paid to that problem because that is one of the hurdles that is impeding the, the full distribution of smart meters. In the show Silicon Valley, there is that scene where they hacked all the smart fridges Um <laughs> And I like even though that was a scene from a sitcom, I think it's still a very big concern that like having these smart devices, the amount of secure attention paid to cybersecurity on something like a refrigerator hasn't been as much as on, say, your computer. And so that offers a clear vulnerability. And I think it's something that when people talk about smart grids and they get excited, it's definitely not talked about enough. Um, Another really interesting point to be made about how smart meters can um, help utilities kind of see what you're doing in your home. So this is actually one of the reasons that um, Humboldt County ended up being a big hotspot for solar development in the early days. So back then, basically, if the utility saw that someone was using a lot of solar or a lot of electricity, sorry, they were suspicious because they're like, why is someone in the forest using this much electricity? They would go over, lo and behold, all of these guys using a lot of solar (laughs) were growing marijuana. And so using solar um, and going off-grid was actually a means for them to avoid getting busted um, with their growing operations. And so that's um, kind of one of the reasons that uh, solar in the U.S. started. So you guys have been speaking a lot to the privacy concerns of this smart technology, but I think, and this might sound like an ignorant opinion, but an issue a lot of people have with smart technology is its reliability. Especially when you think about self-driving cars, there's statistics that prove that like, there will be less accidents if we have self-driving cars, but it's just that one crash that people freak out about. 
because you're not in control. So how do you think you can assuage people's fears about the reliability of smart grids? And do you think that's in the realm of possibility? So right now, the grid in the U.S. is fairly reliable, or that's part of the utility contract, right? Like PG&E, the reason why we use them is because they're supposed to be delivering us power all the time. But the thing is, now with wildfire season and public safety power shutoffs, they're breaking their end of the bargain. And so I think there's going to be a lot of appetite for customers to try different things because the traditional, like things that have traditionally been reliable just aren't anymore. And so I think the baseline for that has shifted. Um, So that's when you see customers starting to adopt things like batteries and microgrids and things like that. Um, In California, Last year, they issued this huge proposal to um, integrate batteries um, in low-income communities, basically making sure that communities that can't necessarily afford to, like, these people might not be able to individually put batteries on their homes, but making sure that they still have access to this technology um, is really important, especially going back to the air conditioning point, right? In these times when it's going to be unsafe to transmit power long distances, it's going to be hot. If you don't have power to run your air conditioner, for vulnerable populations, that's actually a health risk. And so I think um, if you're focused on equity and um, population health and justice, then that's something that we're really going to have to um, spend a lot more resources working on. Yeah, I think that's a it's a great question, Evan. And I I, I, I personally don't think I have a strong answer for it because at, at the end of the day, it's, it's a fear-based um, decision, I think, that people are – that they don't want these, these smart meters – or these privacy intrusions. And I understand that to a large degree. Like I, I, I worry about my privacy online, given off social media or just my phone and things like that. And then smart meters themselves. And I mean, the fact is that they can tell a lot about you with that data. So it's tough because there's a fear-based, it's a valid fear-based decision there. Um, but I think like the answer that I can provide right now is that you, you kind of got to weigh like the pros and cons here. And like, if the con is like a, a marginal decrease in your privacy, um, the pro is you're trying to avoid cataclysmic failure of your grid like we're seeing in PG&E in Northern California, like wildfires. We're trying to avoid fi- wildfires. We're trying to avoid like public safety shutoffs. Um, and that's and that's hard to also sell that argument to individuals because it's a very like far in the future. It's like a very like uh, abstract thing that we're offering them. It's like we're going to offer you not wildfires. We're going to offer you not um, blackouts. So like and it's hard to to really like convince someone that that's what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, that's that's the best answer that I can provide as of now. But it is a tough problem to solve, I think. Yeah. Um. Another thing I would add is I think the average consumer is not actually that concerned with privacy. Like they claim to be, but if you look at like the actions that people are taking, like like people are all still on Facebook, you know. Um. And I think ultimately what it'll come down to is kind of the trade off with convenience. So. One thing that people are talking about a lot is like, oh, if, you know, the utility can control the battery in your home um, to serve grid needs. I think that's something where people where like objectively people would feel a little bit weird about the utility having control over something that's in their home. But if it's not affecting how you use the battery and you're getting some financial benefit out of it, people are not going to notice and they'll kind of be fine with it. So. I think while privacy concerns are very important, and especially for those of us in the industry, we need to take them seriously. I think at, on a societal level, like 
what we've seen is that people don't really care that much. And so it's that makes it all the more important for those of us in the industry to make sure that um, cybersecurity is a top priority and that um, people's data isn't being um, used in nefarious ways. And that's also definitely another way in which um, the EU is far ahead of the US in terms of regulations around data privacy. Um, I mean, this goes back to the whole thing about how there's a lot of old people in office who don't understand how technology works. Like, they're not going to be able to come up with these regulations. They don't even understand, like, how Facebook's business model works, among other things. So I think, um, yeah, there's a a lot of work to be done and a lot of hard questions. So I think that's a really... um... That's a, that's a really interesting point that you bring up that it's a, I think you're right. You know, it's more of a trade-off between privacy and convenience than what I previously said about privacy versus, you know, safety. Cause people don't really care about like markets aren't driven by what people need. Markets are really driven by what they want. Um, individual, especially Americans are driven by desire more than necessity. Like for example, there's tons of people who are over overweight and what they need is to lose weight and to not eat as much and exercise more. But what they want is another Big Mac. So they go for the Big Mac. And and so people tend to be driven more by, by, by desire than by necessity, um, which is maybe something that we can harness in this movement. Like we kind of have to provide those creature comforts and those desirable things um, to attain. Um, so I think, you know, it's, keeping, keeping with that, con- that conversation about smart grids and privacy concerns. Um, so there, I think there are going to be those always those in America, those those couple of people who just will not compromise on privacy whatsoever. Um, and those people are getting, um, I think they're, they're, they're very loud right now. Those, like, those individuals are very loud and, and passionate about that. So I think one of the solutions potentially going forward is maybe um, you know, a movement away from larger grids and um, centralized grid management towards something like microgrids, where um, you have like uh, microgrids essentially are smaller, like batches of, um, let's say in San Francisco, um, the entire grid is managed by PG&E over um, a huge, like all of Northern California, and of which that San Francisco is a small part of that. But, um, you know, San Francisco um, tech tech um, individuals might be concerned with safety and reliability, not to mention clean energy standards. So they might decide that we want to elect to build our own microgrid, uh, physically these, these, these sticks and wires here, these poles and these um, utility lines, we're going to be um, you know, built up here um, and managed um, technologically and um, software-wise, um, like create, sending el- electricity wherever you want it within that own microgrid, which, which creates like more robustness. So if, the entire, if PG&E decides to shut down the energy for the entire swath of Northern California, um, this microgrid can be self-sustaining and be, can be like provided for by solar, wind, and batteries on its own. So it creates a second level of uh, protection there. And you can have a little bit more privacy as well when you when you are you have trust in that institution. So if that microgrid was built by your community um, and you know you had your own um, your own individuals there at the table uh, making the decisions that you trust, that that helps elevate that trust as well and um, hopefully can help mitigate some of those privacy concerns that people rightfully have. Yeah. Um I think so we've been talking a lot about microgrids and haven't actually defined what a microgrid is. So I think it would be helpful to do that. So a microgrid, um, the generally accepted definition is a localized group of electricity sources and loads that can operate in grid connected or islanded mode. So a lot of what you would think about now is microgrids are most common in military bases and um, university campuses. So UC Berkeley, I think, 
I remember there were several times when there was like a power outage in the city of Berkeley, but then things that were connected to the university, the dorms, um, the campus, they still had power because they have their own microgrid. When we're talking about like a citywide microgrid, so the, sorry, going back. So another very important thing is that it can operate both in grid connected or islanded mode. So the um, university's microgrid, when the power's on on the grid, you can be connected to the grid, take power from them, whatever. But then if the, there's a blackout, then you can cut off and still operate. So I think this is a little bit different than having um, a, what Stephen was talking about with the municipal utility in a place like San Francisco, because that, while it can also be islanded from the main grid, the management of the whole cities, I, uh, the city's grid, I think is more of a governance problem than necessarily a technical problem. And so they're, they're very closely interconnected, I think, because the advances in microgrid technology have made it so that we can have these islanded grids. Um, the governance part is equally as important to making people feel like they can trust um, their local institutions. Yeah, and the, the last point I'd add to that is that this is all in like the, the general trend that we've seen in, in the energy landscape, that we're moving towards decentralized and more localized and spread out institutions. So we see that with clean energy, like solar and wind instead of these giant factories of, of coal or oil that's just burning and centralized versus, so versus decentralized and localized, distributed, and as well as microgrids. So instead of one massive grid that handles a huge section of land, little microgrids, so like little sections that are, that are owned and managed by um, a city or a university or a naval base, uh, something like that. Well, I think it's that time for the segment that has the coolest posters since Andy Warhol's Obama. It's the Green New Spiel. Steven, why don't you start us out? Man, those intros are getting better and better, Evan. Well, thanks, man. My my Green New Spiel is about a little guy named Jeff Bezos and a little company known as Amazon. So um, you may have heard, <laughs> let the haters come on. Um, the haters are my motivators. Let's go. <laughs> okay, so Amazon recently has purchased the naming rights to the um, to this new arena. Well, a um, to-be-built arena, and they've named it the Climate Pledge Arena. This is in Seattle, uh, Washington, and essentially this arena is going to be the world's first net zero, um, net zero carbon arena and zero waste arena. So um, this initiative came after thousands of Amazon employees have signed an open letter to Bezos and the Amazon board to adopt a wide-ranging plant, uh, plan to fight climate change. So um, this this arena will be powered with 100% renewable energy, and this is you know note here it's not clean energy but renewable energy. So clean energy is kind of a a, a wider um, wider term that includes things like nuclear. Um, it's it's kind of a politically safer to say clean energy, but they're they're going a little bit further to say 100% renewable energy. Um, it'll be again zero waste, which is think about how hard that's going to be for an arena. We have fans coming in, you have so many consumption, um, so many so much consumption going on and somehow will still remain zero waste and it will use reclaimed rainwater um, of which Seattle has an abundance to create ice for the games. So this is pretty cool in my opinion. This is on the heels of several Amazon and Bezos climate projects. Um, for example, Bezos himself has personally pledged $10 billion of his own money to climate philanthropy in the Bezos Earth Fund. Um, Granted, a friend of mine recently pointed out that Jeff Bezos has added another $25 billion to his wealth during the COVID season. So, you know, just in terms of relative terms, um, but going on, um, the Amazon venture capital investment program that they've created 
called the Climate Pledge Fund, which is $2 billion um, that they'll be dedicating to clean energy startups and a commitment to becoming carbon neutral by 2040, which is 10 years earlier than the Climate Paris Accord. Um, not to mention a $10 million grant towards forest conservation. So, um, you know, hate him or love him, Jeff Bezos is making moves on climate. Well, I guess I have to thank you for your green new spiel, Stephen. And I digress, although I believe Jeff Bezos could be doing a lot more than he is doing. He's not the Koch brothers. He's actually, he's actively fighting against climate change and not actively reinforcing it. So Kelly, now let's hear your green new spiel. Yeah. Um, so one point that I would like very pedantic point, but the arena has been built. It used to be called Key Arena. It used to house the Seattle Supersonics, which um, since moved to Oklahoma and became the whatever their team is called. Sorry, I don't follow. Oklahoma sp- City Thunder. Sorry, I don't follow <laughs> sports. But basically, the arena exists, but they're um, revamping it because Seattle is getting a um, NHL team, and so um, it's. Interesting that they called it the Climate Pledge Arena because that's um, Bezos' like specific initiative. But I guess like he gets to brand it however he wants because they paid for the naming rights. Um, so that's just one point that I would make about that. Um, one interesting article I read um, in the New Republic. It was called "Inside the Fight to Shape Biden's Climate Policy," and basically the point of the article is that a lot of these progressive groups are trying to influence who he picks for all the different positions, because in an administration that's focused on climate, every single person will have a role to play. For instance, the Secretary of the Interior can control who's getting oil and gas leases, um, among other things. And this is something that I think in the Trump administration, basically, they filled every single position with someone who's trying to push fossil fuels at all levels. And within um, the Democratic Party for the next administration, they're trying to do the opposite of that. So in addition to maybe putting someone like Jay Inslee as climate czar, you would put people who care about climate change into every single position to make sure that the full force of the federal government is behind it. So I think um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And I think it's a good sign that um, climate advocates are taking the hard work of governance seriously, moving beyond just platitudes to figuring out like who are the people who need to be in the room to be making the good decisions. All right. Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green news spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment And we wrap up the show. Thanks as always for listening to The Renewable Generation, and feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'll be back every Wednesday, so be sure to tune in on Wednesdays for your Renewable Generation content, and we'll see you next week. (music) 